Father, today we come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus, and we say that you are good and your mercy endures forever. Where would we be without your grace? Where would we be without your kindness and your mercy in our lives? We often misstep. We neglect you. We choose ourselves in our own ways, and yet you are faithful. Your kindness knows no limit. You are so patient. We thank you and honor you for that today. We are so grateful that your word is always coming to us. Your word is always present to us. And we ask right now, Holy Spirit, that you would move among us in a way that you make preaching easy for me and hearing a delight. We don't want to stay in the outer court, but we want you to draw us into the Holy of Holies this morning that we can behold your glory, that we can be not just transfixed, but transformed and transfigured by the glory of your Son. To that end, we ask for your grace, your very self, your very strength, your very essence to move in and among us this morning, enabling us to do what we cannot do on our own, bringing us to places and dimensions we have no strength or ability to arrive at on our own. We ask for this in the name of Jesus and all of God's people said. Come on, all God's people said. Amen, amen, amen. If you have your Bible, I'm going to ask you to turn to Genesis chapter 37. While you're turning there, I'm just going to bring us up to speed. We are in the midst of a, a study on lessons from the life of Joseph. And it's a survey of 10 character tests that the Lord used to prepare Joseph for his destiny to flow through his life. And so far, we have covered five tests in this house. And I'm impressed whoever came up with these tests has the gift of alliteration. Uh, we have the pride test, the pit test, the palace test, the purity test. Last week we covered the prison test, and today we're going to look at how we steward a word from the Lord, the prophetic test. And I want to clarify, when we use the word prophetic, what we're not talking about is mere future telling, okay? When we hear the word prophetic, I think sometimes we can dilute or distort that into something that resembles a fortune teller. When we use the word prophetic, we're talking about a supernatural revelation of God's perspective. A supernatural revelation of God's perspective. And what is the, per the perspective is on his intentions for people. Okay? What God wants to see happen in people's lives and in people's situations. And in some sense, a prophetic word can be the Spirit of God speaking into our present, but calling us into God's future. In other words, is it not encouraging if I say to you that what God has prepared for you is greater than what you're experiencing right now? Is that encouraging to you? Does that give you hope to consider the possibility that what God has prepared and intends for your life is greater than what you're living right now? 
man, that sounds good to me. I've got a hope for that. If I don't have that hope, I don't even know that this is worth doing. If, if faith in God and walking with God does not lead to some measurable difference in my life, why am I doing this again? And so the prophetic is coming, a word coming from that space, that intentional space, God's intentions for you and for me. It's the word coming from that space into this space. And sometimes that word can feel like it's laying out explicit details about your future. Other times, it's speaking very strongly to change that needs to happen in our present. So with that in mind, let's look at Genesis 37. And we're just going to read three verses. We're going to read verses 9, 10, and 11. It says, Then he, speaking of Joseph, had yet another dream. And he informed his brothers of it and said, Behold, I have had yet another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. He also told it to his father as well as to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you have had? Am I and your mother and your brothers actually going to come to bow down to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the matter in mind. Now, Joseph is well known for his dreams. As we could infer from this, there are two dreams that Joseph shares with his brothers. We just read about the second one. The first one involved sheaves of wheat bowing down, and this one involved heavenly bodies bowing down. And in both instances, the impression, because we've know, we know the whole story of Joseph, right? There's no, there's no hidden line here. We know that this is speaking into the future of what's going to happen in the end of the book of Genesis when his brothers and eventually his father, Joseph's brothers and his father, will come to Egypt. Joseph will be the second in command. They will desperately need food and grain. And in deference and respect to this Egyptian ruler that they think is Egyptian, they will bow down to the ground, and they will show him honor. And so we see here an example of God speaking the future in a prophetic sense, but it's ultimately revealing God's intentions and desires for Joseph. His intentions and desires for Joseph is that Joseph will be in a place of power. Joseph will tell us in the 50th chapter why God wanted him in a position of power. This is very significant. Many times when we hear a prophetic word, we're very impressed with or caught up in the what, and we never stop to consider the why. We want to know what God is going to do in our lives and never stop to ask why is God going to do that? What does that look like in Joseph's life? What is God going to do? God is going to elevate him to the second in command in all of Egypt. The point is not so Joseph can walk around saying, I'm second in command in all of Egypt. That's not the point. Joseph will go on to very explicitly state, God did this. That's a separate sermon for another day, by the way. Think about that for a minute. Who did this? 
wait a minute, I thought his brothers were the ones that sold him into slavery. I thought Potiphar's wife was the one who falsely accused him and Potiphar put him in jail. I thought that the, the, his friends, the baker and the cupbearer, they were the ones who forgot him and left him. God did this? At what point did God do anything? I am trying to mess with you, by the way. You're all looking at me like, what, is this a trick question? You better believe it's a trick question. I am trying to mess with you. Because if you read the story, it's one horrible, sinful thing after another that's done to Joseph. And Joseph's interpretation of events at the end is God did this. That's what makes God, God. And notice this. He says, God did this. He says it this way. What you meant for evil, God used it for good. But the verse doesn't end there. He says that he might work forth deliverance and rescue and salvation for generations to come. We read that verse and we think God did this to do something good for me. That's what we think. Oh, you know, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for my good. That's not what it says. It says, you meant it for evil, but God had plans for other people besides me, so he did this for me. We have to remember that when it comes to the prophetic word, there are at least two purposes, okay? At least two. So here's the first one. Prophetic words will reveal our destiny or think of another related word, our destination in God's plan. There's one plan and one will of God for the world, for reality. There's one plan and purpose. Why do I say there's one? Because God is one. God is not divided. God is not partitioned into different. No, God is one. God is integrity. God is unity. And we as individual persons within God's reality have roles to play, purposes, uh, and, and various things that we're meant to live out and embody and experience. Now, here's the thing. Some of these prophetic words require they, if you will, are dependent upon our participation. Let me stop myself right now and say this. Just, we're going to put a hard pause here, okay? So I'm going to step over here because we're going to do a hard pause. What we're going to get into right now is going to be a little bit more classroom style. Is that okay? We'll get a little bit more into classroom style, so we'll take a little bit more notes. We'll go into a little bit more texts and verses and break things down that way. And maybe at the end, if the Spirit sets some fire in the house, we'll go where we got to go, okay? So, all right. There are some times where we will hear a, 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 what we're thinking or discerning as a prophetic word, and it's easy to presume that we sit back passively and do nothing, and God performs his word on us, almost like on an operating table. And dare I say that maybe the majority, but certainly a significant amount of the time, the prophetic word that God gives is an invitation to participation. Okay? Listen, we're not saved by works. 
in terms of our ambition or our effort in that sense, or earning it. But salvation involves work. Okay? So what does Paul say in his letter? He says, we work out our salvation in fear and trembling. So, so there are some prophetic words that, that in revealing our destiny, getting to the destination requires our participation. In other words, God is not going to drag you into his future. I know, I know we all love the footsteps thing, and I've seen it in many bathrooms, the poem. You know, I looked back, and there was one set of footsteps. Usually what it feels like is there's one set of footsteps and another one of two ruts where my heels were, like, in the ground resisting the whole way, right? Here's the deal. Arrival at your Destiny in God's kingdom requires your faithful participation and cooperation with his spirit. I'm going to say that again. Your arrival at the destination God has for you requires your faithful cooperation with the spirit's leading. I would defer to Galatians chapter 5. We walk by the spirit. Okay, listen, babies are carried, mature folk walk. Okay, so uh, one of my spiritual fathers said it this way. He said, without God, you cannot, but without you, God will not. Jot that one down. That's not original to me. Without God, put it in first person, without God, I cannot. But without me, God will not. God desires to work with us. And listen, that desire is greater than our stubbornness. And everybody said, in other words, he'll wait till we get it. His desire for you to participate with his grace is greater than our laziness. It's greater than our thick-headedness and our stiff-neckedness. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody? Okay. I didn't want to be the only one in the room that's got a, a, a stiff neck. But anyway, so number one the, uh, of the two purposes of prophetic words, they reveal our destiny. And we're simply saying, you've you got to walk if you want to get there. Okay? The second purpose of a prophetic word is to test us. Prophetic words from God will test us. Now, I want to invite you to turn over to Psalm 105. Psalm 105 has, it's, it's telling the story of Israel. It's really, to be more specific, telling the story of God through the people of Israel. And we're going to look at three verses here, verses 17, 18, and 19 of Psalm 105. And again, we see what we were talking about before. God sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. He just stopped there. Was it wrong to sell Joseph as a slave? Yes, it was undeniably wrong. But what does the psalmist say? He says what Joseph says. God sent me here. 
God sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They forced his feet into shackles. He was put in irons. Now look at this. Until the time that his word came to pass, the word of the Lord refined him. Refined him. Now, that is the word tzerah in Hebrew or tzerafat in Hebrew in this particular uh, transcript. And what that word means is to smelt, to refine by fire, to purify metal. Fire, heat. Anybody ever felt, maybe in the last couple months, God turning the heat up in your life? Has any, let's, we'll just forget I even said that. Has anybody ever said, I just want to hear a word from the Lord? Of course, we, I, I think most of us have said that. Here's what will happen in sequence. Almost inevitably, you can count on this. You ask for the word, God will give you the word. And then suddenly somebody will start touching the dials on the stove. And you're like, what is going on? I'll tell you what's going on. The second purpose of the prophetic word is, is happening. And that is God is using that word to test you. Why? Because the word of God is tested. In other words, the word of God goes through the fire. There's nothing impure in it. When you smelt something, when you take metal that has dirt and impurity in it, and you put that metal in the fire, here's what happens. The impurities rise to the top, right? When you put the word of God in the fire, nothing rises to the top because there's no impurity in it. Is there impurity in you and me? So if we are going to live out and embody the pure word, what needs to happen to us? Does that make sense? In other words, God is going to use the word not just to inspire you, but to refine you. Not just to guide you. In other words, this is the, the, the sense of destiny is the inspiration. There's something ahead that's greater than what I'm experiencing now. That's the inspiration of the prophetic word. The refinement of the prophetic word is in between the now and the then, that word is going to transform me. Transformation is an exciting word. Refining, less exciting. Because refining means there's stuff in you that's coming out of you. And sometimes the removal of those things is not comfortable. But this is where God's purpose comes to pass. Now, let's be very clear about something. There is a very critical difference between testing and temptation. Testing is not temptation. Testing draws us closer to the Lord, and temptation draws us away from the Lord. Testing will draw us closer. Temptation will draw us away. Many times when we don't like testing, we rebuke it under the auspices of temptation. You might pray against something. And God's like, I'm not answering that prayer because that's actually me trying to do that. 
In other words, don't waste your energy and your time praying against God because that doesn't work. If God brings us into a season of testing, it's futile to pray against the testing because you will stay in the testing until the refining process is done. What we said last week is this. If you don't grow through it, you will go through it again. And you can't pray your way out of the test. You can only obey your way out of the test. That was good. I'm going to say that again. That's not even in my notes. You can't pray your way out of the test. You can only obey your way out of the test. Because the testing is for your good. God is good and he only wills good for you. If there's bad stuff in us, it's good for it to get out of us. It's not necessarily pleasurable. The problem is we live in a world that equates good with pleasure. So when something unpleasurable comes into our lives, we assume it must be bad. Hence, Isaiah is standing before the Lord in the sixth chapter in the year that King Uzziah died. And he sees the Lord high and lifted up and he says, woe is me. I am undone. This is a bad thing. And God's like, hang on. Let me get some coals, and we're going to refine you. Think about this for a moment. In that gap between receiving the word and realizing the word, Joseph has his dreams at 17. He becomes the adjutant to Pharaoh at 30. Eleven years after his dreams, he finds himself in a prison. He spends two years in a prison. We don't know how long, but it's probably most of that time he spends waiting for the cupbearer to do what he promised. Do you think there's a chance Joseph thought about his dreams while he was in prison? I'm going to suggest that those dreams were used by the Spirit of God to refine Joseph. The word that Joseph received at 17 purified him at 28. The hope that Joseph received at 17 sustained him at 29. So that by the time Joseph stood before Pharaoh at 30, think about it, the Joseph of 28 was hoping that a cupbearer would get him out of prison. The Joseph at 30 knew that it was God. What's the difference? You spend that time there, and the prophetic word is going to test you. It is going to prove you. Listen, God will use his word and the delay to refine you. It's not one or the other. It's both together. A word from God with divine delay equals Christlikeness. That Psalm 105 that verse, that 19th verse in the New Living Translation, listen to it. It says, until the time came to fulfill his dreams. Everybody say until. Until is the worst word in English. Anybody besides me suffer with impatience, especially when you know good is coming. Man, that's the worst. We're going to all have it on Thanksgiving, right? We're going to smell it. 
It's the until mom says, all right, let's eat. Until is a terrible word. It's a cuss. Psalm 105.19, New Living Translation says, until the time came to fulfill his dreams. Listen to this. The Lord tested Joseph's character. Mm. When you get a word, and listen, God's got a word for you. If you haven't received one already, he's got one for you. When you receive a word, that word is going to inspire you to realize, to hope, to believe there is more than what you're experiencing now. But that word is going to test you. And so here's where we're going to get real practical, real basic. Try to put the teacher hat on. Take the preacher hat off. We're going to try. And we're going to ask the question, how do you pass the prophetic test? How do you pass the prophetic test? And there are three fundamental ways that we navigate, that we walk through, and we come out the other side. The first thing we have to do is we have to submit the word. Now, notice what it, it doesn't say. It does not say submit to the word. It says, submit the word. So here's what I want you to do. Let's turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Okay, 1 Corinthians 14. Paul is writing here to a church who was overrun with prophetic words to the point that he actually tells them in this very chapter, he's like, listen, let's keep the prophetic words to a minimum of like maybe two or three in a service because you guys are prophesying and speaking in tongues like out of control. Let's, let's try and bring, let's dial it back. You know, it's the opposite of what you have in most churches nowadays. Most churches, you wouldn't know they were Pentecostal. I didn't, I'm sorry. I, I shouldn't have said that. That was inappropriate. Uh, okay, so 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 14. Pastor Terry, I did not say that out loud. That came out my mouth like I'm getting too comfortable. I'm here to serve the apostle, and I should not have said that. So, First uh, uh, Corinthians fourteen thirty one says, "For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted." Now, here's our key verse: the spirit of prophets are subject to prophets. For this is why God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So here's the reality: is that passing the prophetic test, there's a risk here of getting confused. Has anybody ever received an alleged prophetic word that really threw your life into a tailspin? I hope not. I'm glad nobody's going to admit that. But listen, it happens. This is one of the reasons that people don't want prophetic ministry in their churches. They don't want people going around with the word of the Lord because we are prone to mishandle things like that. We are prone to step into things that it was not God at all. So you can't pass a prophetic test in isolation. You have to take the word that God has given you, and you have to submit it. As Paul says here, the spirit of prophets are subject to prophets. Now, if, if you turn over to the second Corinthians, we're going to get some bolstering insight here. And there are 
several instances, 2 Corinthians 13, there are several instances in the New Testament where Jesus and the apostles quote Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, we find this principle. Here, Paul is quoting the Greek version of, of uh, Deuteronomy. And he says this in verse 1. This is the third time I'm coming to you on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Every matter shall be confirmed. Now, we don't have time because this isn't a long class and this isn't a course. But understanding how Chris, Chris, the, the biblical text works is very important here. And that is Paul is pulling a verse out of Deuteronomy and he's using it in a church setting, okay? So the, the believers in Corinth are a church. The original text in Deuteronomy is a legal situation involving legal accusations and wanting to seek justice and so on and so forth. So what's very interesting here is what does this tell us about the ways in which the apostle feels he can use the text? He's taking liberty is what I'm saying. Okay? He's taking liberty. And what do we learn from Paul's liberty? So Paul could simply say, you know, um, what Paul is not doing here is he's not letting the text stay strictly limited to legal matters. He's now bringing it into his exchange with Corinth. And that tells us that this idea, every, on the testimony of two or three witnesses, every matter shall be confirmed. Paul understands this to be a universal idea. That, that's what this is suggesting. In other words, this is not a specific, this is a universal. In other words, when Moses says it, Moses is saying it in the legal system because it's true in other systems as well. We know this is true in science. A person, the scientific method is one what, what, is a pers what does a scientist have to do with their hypothesis in order for it to move forward? They have to submit their findings to others. Isn't it interesting that the church, which many of us often have been deluded into being anti-science, the one thing we don't want to do is submit our prophetic words to anybody. And then we wonder why they don't pan out. We wonder why there's confusion. The fact is, we need to... Based on this, listen to what I'm about to say. This is very important. Anytime you feel like you have a prophetic word, you need to seek out two or three unbiased supernatural confirmations. Don't let the word supernatural throw you off. This is not, I'm not talking about an audible voice from heaven. I'm saying when you find yourself in a conversation with somebody who knows nothing about your circumstance, and you're not guiding the conversation. And they say something that explicitly and specifically confirms the word that you sensed. That is a supernatural, unbiased confirmation. Why? Because we're hoping and trusting that that person either A, has the Spirit of God in them, and the Spirit is speaking through them to confirm the word you've heard, or that person could be a complete uncovenanted, unregenerate person, think of Balaam's ass. Hello. He was not a prophet, but that donkey sure got that. She is actually a she, right? She got him straight. 
So listen, if God can use a donkey, God can certainly use an image bearer who doesn't happen to be a believer. But what you're looking for is something that you have not manipulated, you have not guided, you have not hinted. Somebody that came maybe out of the blue and said, you know, I was thinking about you the other day. Have you ever considered changing jobs and you've heard a word from the Lord? (laughs) And you're not talking about career, you're not talking about whatever. This is what I mean. When, When you start to get those unmanipulated, unbiased confirmations of the word that you could not have orchestrated, that's when you start to pass the prophetic test because you've submitted the words. In other words, you are not insistent on this being God until the two or three comes in. That's one of the ways you know you're going to pass the test. It's when you hear something that you think you like and you run with it and you don't want anybody else to speak to it, you will fail the prophetic test. I'll say that again. I said it way too fast. When you, quote, unquote, hear a word from the Lord that you like, and you don't let anybody speak to it, you don't submit it to any other prophetic people, you don't let God confirm it by two or three witnesses, be careful. There are many people who have bought homes, married people, quit jobs, moved across country because they had a word from the Lord that was never submitted. Oh, what pain we often bear. The second test. Test the word. So we submit the word and we test the word. How do we test the word? Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians 5. You're going to be very familiar with this. Uh, I'll even read a couple verses earlier. So sorry, team. We're going to read 19 through 21. But I'm going to start at 16. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. And everybody said, if you want to know what the will of God is, you just got it. But verse 19, do not quench the spirit, do not utterly reject prophecies, but, everybody say but, examine everything. We need to understand that the way that this is, you'll even notice after the word everything, there's a semicolon, which means it's the conclusion of that phrase or thought. And here's the deal. He's saying, don't throw away prophecy, examine it. Okay? Uh, My bishop, uh, one of my bishops, Mark Sharona, he says this, and, and he's very eloquent, so bear with me. Prophetic insight represents a unique form of knowledge that arises from deeply reflective and prayerful engagement with the sacred text. I said he's, he's a mouthful, right? Here we go. It is an intimate process where the wisdom of the Spirit infuses our consciousness, molding our perceptions. As we articulate these spiritual insights, we have a word. As we articulate these spiritual insights, our words inevitably dress those insights in personal subjectivity. Okay? 
It's important to acknowledge this human element. Prophetic words always have a human element. You can't get away from it. You don't want to get away from it. This is the way God's designed it. But listen to me. To assert a pure, unfiltered, divine transmission is to overstep the teachings of Scripture itself. Let me, that last line is the key. We said the second aspect, the second way we pass the prophetic test is we test the word. Let me expand that. We test the word by the word. What Bishop is saying here is anybody who comes up and is claiming that they have a pure, unfiltered divine transmission, unsubmitted, to, to say that is an overstep of the teachings of Scripture itself. In other words, we have to examine everything in the light of the sacred text. There's a line in Deuteronomy. It, it, you know, we think of prophetic. We think of like 1 Corinthians, right? Look at, look at Deuteronomy 13, starting at verse 1. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign and a wonder. Let's stop there for a second. This is the Old Testament, folks. This is the Old Testament. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, now what's the sign going to be? And the sign or the wonder comes true of which he spoke to you. Now look at this. Let's follow other gods whom you have not known and let's serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. If somebody comes with a prophetic word, th this, this instance here, for example, if a pr prophet or a dreamer of dreams comes and says, let's go worship idols, I love the fact that this is ridiculous because I love the grunting that happens when you say, no, that's stupid. What? Oh, shaking. I got y'all shaking your heads at me like, idiots. These, who would, who would go worship an idol? What sort of prophet would come up? You know that in the New Testament, idolatry and greed are the same thing. I wonder if anybody's ever gotten a prophetic word that appealed to your sense of greed. More money, more stuff. Prophetic words are always going to call you to be more like Jesus. And the only reason money and stuff would be involved is because you already are enough like Jesus to handle it. Money is never an end in and of itself. So let's go back to it again. If a prophet is coming and saying, God's got a blessing for you. God's got a blessing for you. You can have it. Just reach up and grab it. God's got a blessing for you. We hear that and we're like, oh, money cometh. Bring it on. What I'm saying is we hear these things 
is it drawing us closer to God or is it drawing us away? He's saying in Deuteronomy 13, Moses is saying this, if what the prophet is saying goes against what God has said in Scripture, do not follow it. Do not follow it. These scriptures are here to help us judge and understand and discern. And to think that a prophetic word could somehow just be accepted on the charisma and authoritative personality of the one delivering it is ridiculous. I'm going to take my word and I'm going to submit it to others and I'm going to take somebody else's word or my own word and I'm going to run it through the lens of the sacred text. The third way that we pass the prophetic test, number one was submit the word, number two is test the word, and number three is hold on to your word. Hold on to the word. In other words, there's going to be an until. Hello. We live in microwave culture. As a matter of fact, does anybody besides me stand in front of the microwave and get impatient? You know that popcorn, the movie's ready to go, and you're like, dang, they're still popping in there. Come on, let's go. I have to do the full three minutes? Can I get away with 2.15? Like, what's going on here? Friends, there is always going to be an until. Jesus is the world's biggest until. God was not in a rush to send his son. I can guarantee you he's not in a rush to perform anything. Uh, Tolkien, and I, I don't want to upset anybody when I say this, but J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote the Lord of the Rings trilogy, uh, lover of God and believer, he has this line in there. And some people get tripped up, and I'm not here to stir any trouble. I just want you to get the line, but I want to say this so you don't get too, too nervous. There's a line in there uh, that is said by the wizard Gandalf. And uh, he's, he's a symbolic character, but he says this. He says, a wizard is never early... And he is never late. He arrives precisely when he intends to. And if that is not God in my life, I don't know what is. Because God is never late, and he is never early. He shows up right on time. The problem is, God's punctuality and my expectations do not line up. And so everybody who's waiting on a breakthrough, delay is not denial. It is invitation to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And so we hold on to our word in the in-between season and how do we hold on to the word? By engaging God's word. You hold on to the word by engaging God's word. And let me give you three quick pointers here. Number one, study it. Study the Bible. You say, oh, that's so obvious. Well, I'm not talking about just checking off a box on a reading plan. Study it. Read it slowly. Read it in different translations. 
Break it down to the best of your ability based on your resources. Whatever you can do, be a steward of your study habits. Number two, meditate. Meditation is different than study. Meditation is chewing the cud. All right? You all know that we are the sheep of his hand, it says in Psalm 95. Psalm 100 says we are the sheep of his pasture. Jesus is the good shepherd. Sheep are ruminating creatures. They eat their grass. They swallow their grass. They have a series of stomachs, and it sits in one stomach, and then they bring it back up into their mouth, and they chew it again. That's called chewing the cud. In other words, you can't digest it if you don't chew it again. We read Scripture, and we just pass it. I'll let you get the junior high joke out of that. We read Scripture, and we just pass it. And we wonder why our life stinks. That was very solid material right there, folks. I can't do any better without crossing lines of PG-13. You hear what I'm saying? But when believers meditate on the text, what did the psalmist say? On your law, I will meditate day and night. The psalmist said, I wake up in the night watches on my bed and I contemplate you and I meditate on you. There's too much skimming and not enough meditating. There's too much. I checked the box. I read Leviticus 23. Meditate. Stay there. Bring it back up when you're driving in the car. Let the Holy Spirit, oop, there it is, and chew it again and chew it again. And suddenly the strength of the text will start to be imbued to your very soul to the point that you're spiritually digesting instead of just passing. Meditation matters. And thirdly, memorize the text. You will find that when God has given you a word and you start to spend time in Scripture, that certain verses are going to jump out at you. Certain things are going to catch your eye. Memorize that text. Memorize that verse. Thy word I have hid in my heart, Psalm 119 says, that I might not sin against thee. I don't want to miss the mark. I don't want to get off course. See, sometimes we think of, I've hid thy word in thy heart so that I won't look at pornography or I won't get drunk. Stop that. We get ourselves a pass when we think that way. What does the book of James say about sin? To him who knows what is right to do and he does it not, to him it is accounted as sin. Sin is not merely the performance of transgression. It is the omission of righteous works. When I memorize scripture, it doesn't just rebuke me when I'm thinking about sinning. It challenges me and invites me and calls me and inspires me to do the right. I think the world is a better place, not just when Christians stop doing bad things, but when we start doing God things. That will happen when his word is in our hearts. Now here's what we know. Joseph passed the prophetic test. Why do I say that? I say that because of what we see in Genesis chapter 50. And we are wrapping up here. So if you want to give me preaching music, I'll, I'll work with you. Genesis 50, looking at verse 24. Joseph has now risen to power. 
Joseph has saved his family. Joseph has situated his family in the best of the land in Goshen. They are thriving as shepherds. The patriarch Jacob has died, and his brothers are scared because they remember what happened after they heard his dreams. They remember. They never forgot. And now they know that the word came true. They're scared. And they say, please, Joseph, be merciful. I think they even made some things up, but that's just my reading of the text. Look at verse 24. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but I love this. God will assuredly take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will assuredly take care of you. And look at this. You shall carry my bones up from here. This is how we know he passed the test. Is Joseph understood that the word God gave him was not about him. The word God gave him was about the word God gave to Abraham. God gave Abraham a word and he said, I will make you a great nation from the great sea to the river Euphrates. Every place your soul of your foot lands, I have given it to you. Joseph knew that word was the defining word. Listen, whatever prophetic word happens in your personal life must conform to the greater foundational prophetic word that has been spoken over the nation of God. That is the Israel of faith. That is you and that is me. And the fact is, Joseph got to the end of his life and said, you know what? God's performed the word that he spoke over me, but I'm not content with that. Could you imagine? God performed the word he spoke over me, but I'm not content with that. In other words, I've got power in Egypt, but I'm not content with that. My family's safe and alive in Egypt, but I'm not content with that. How many of us would be satisfied with Egypt? How many of us would be satisfied knowing God performed the word he spoke over my life? Joseph was not content to have the word spoken over his life fulfilled until the word spoken over his great-grandfather's life was fulfilled. Joseph was determined to keep moving until the word God swore to Abraham would be realized to the point that he said, I'm about to die, but don't leave my bones here because there's still a word over my bones. God has got a word that goes beyond your lifetime. God has got a word that was here before you got here. He's got a word that'll be here when you're gone. Just catch your bones up in that word and you will find yourself in the promised land. Notice the way he said it. God will certainly visit you. Most assuredly, God's going to show up. Why can he say it? Because God showed up for me. Can you imagine he's an old man, 110 years old, and says, I remember 75 years ago in this place I was in a prison. 
I'm sorry, 85 years ago, I was in a prison, and now I'm in a palace. How would I get from there to here? The word that God spoke was true. If he said it, he'll do it. And guess what? He said some other things. He didn't just say stuff to me. He said stuff to Jacob. He said stuff to Isaac. He said stuff to Abraham. And if it came true for me, it's going to come true for them. And that means I may be in Egypt, but I'm not going to stay in Egypt. I may be in some success right now, but there's something bigger than this. I would rather be living in the milk and honey of Canaan than living in the palace of Egypt. You know you've passed the prophetic test when you realize your word is part of a bigger word. Jesus is revealed in Joseph. Because the way Jesus spoke to his followers is the same way Joseph spoke to his brothers. Think about it. Joseph looks at his brothers and says, I know we got it good here. But great-grandpa heard a word from the Lord. And that word wasn't Egypt. That word was Canaan. Don't settle here. God's got more for you. And when you go, take my bones with you. Jesus in the upper room in John 14, he looks at his disciples and he says, I know this has been a great ride. You've seen me open blind eyes. You've seen me feed the 5,000. You've seen me walk on water. You've seen me raise Lazarus from the dead two chapters ago. But here's the deal. Greater works than these will you do. Don't stay here in the upper room. The end of Mark's gospel, in the long version, what does Jesus say? He says, you will cast out demons. You will speak with new tongues. You will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. Don't stay in Egypt. Keep moving. Keep moving. There's a bigger word than this moment. Acts 1, before Jesus ascends, what does he say? He says, you will receive power to be witnesses. Look at this. In Jerusalem, in Judea. It's getting bigger. In Samaria, it's getting bigger. And look at this. To the remotest part of the earth, take my bones with you. The only difference between Jesus and Joseph is Jesus didn't leave us bones. He left us his spirit. Joseph said, you got to take my bones. Jesus is the one who says, can these dry bones live again? Joseph said, take my bones, and Jesus said, you will receive my spirit. Let's pray together. I just feel like God wants to refresh people this morning with a sense of his spirit. He wants to quicken you to the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of you. Some have been languishing, have been idle. You feel like your life has been in neutral for a minute. God wants to reignite some fires. He wants to get some motors running this morning. He wants to remind you that he's left you his spirit. 
Whatever word is over your life was spoken by a life-giving spirit. Whatever word is over your life is the word of Genesis 1, the word of new creation. It is the word that speaks to things which are not as though they are. It's that word that's over your life, and he wants to quicken and awaken that in you this morning. I don't know if there's one person, but I'm going to ask you to do something. I just want you to stand on your, if it's you, stand up on your feet right now and don't delay and say, God, I need you to quicken your spirit in me. This was for me this morning. I want to pass the prophetic test. If it's just quickening you, if it's, if it's poking you this morning, if you feel the spirit of God stirring over you, just stand up on your feet. Father, you see every person that has stood before you right now, and they're standing up and saying, we're hungry and we're thirsty. They're standing up and saying, I'm ready to get moving. I don't want to settle here. I don't want to stay here. I have to believe that whatever is happening in my life, something bigger is going on, something bigger than me, a bigger story than me. Father, right now, Holy Spirit, be loosed in this house. We open the doors of our hearts. We open the windows of our souls this morning. We say, come in, King of glory. Throw wide open the gates today of your life. Let the King of glory come in today. Father, I pray for every person who's in that in-between place. They're living in the until. Lord, I pray that the word that they have in their souls would sustain them, would inspire them, would empower them. And God, if you need to purify us, purify us. We pray that in the end, that this testing in our lives would draw us close to you. Draw us close to you. Draw us close to you. We don't want to be distracted by our emotions. We don't want to be distracted by our circumstances. We don't want to be distracted by past disappointments. We don't want to be distracted by fear of disappointments in the future. God, we just want to move close to you. Let this draw us in. 